This is Linux in Laws, a podcast on topics around free and open source software, any associated contraband, communism, the revolution in general, and whatever else fancies your tickle. Please note that this and other episodes may contain strong language, offensive humor, and other certainly not politically correct language. You have been warned. Our parents insisted on this disclaimer. Happy mum! Thus, the content is not suitable for consumption in the workplace, especially when played back on a speaker in an open-plan office or similar environments. Any minors under the age of 35 or any pets, including fluffy little killer bunnies, your trusted guide dog, unless on speed, and cute T-Rexes or other associated dinosaurs. Welcome to Linux and Loss, Season 1, Episode 83. Martin, good morning. Or rather, good afternoon good morning, or afternoon, good evening, whatever. Evening, wherever you are, yes. Exactly. Good good something. <clears throat> How are you, Chris? Can't complain, Martin. What about yourself? Well, you can always complain. It's you know, quite, quite a national sport in some countries, actually. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> the UK probably being at the very top of that list. I think it might be, it might be, yeah. Closely yeah, yeah. followed by Germany. <laughs> okay. <laughs> But this is not about nationalities, nations, or complaining. Cultures, yes. Exactly, cultures, rather something about Linux. So, Martin, what are we talking about today? Uh, we are talking about various ways to get Linux onto your system of choice. Excellent. So, in that case, just buy a computer with Linux pre-installed and off you go. People okay, okay. Yes, yes. That was short and sweet. That is an option, an option. Um, not no, that many no, actually no, come, come with Linux these days, though, do they? Well, there are a couple of things. A couple, yes, but not, not many. And, yeah, shameless teaser, we will have one of the companies... Uh, on the show. Not we will? Too, Are we sure about this now? So, exactly. So, the, this episode should go live before, hopefully, the year's over, maybe already next year. But it's it's planned to actually have a hardware vendor on the show that will talk about his approach, or their approach, rather, to putting Linux on, the, on, on laptops and desktops and what have you. Hmm. Okay. But today is actually, as Martin already pointed out, about distributions. And when I say distributions, I do not mm. mean the kind of things that you simply install by putting it on a, on a stick and just kind of uh, putting it into the computer, booting it up, and then the, the installer would do it themselves, or itself rather. But something more for the, what's the word I'm looking for? Ambitious user. Um, well... But before we touch yeah. this, we should yeah, probably... we'll, it will become clear when we talk about these exactly. Things, right? But before exactly, but before we do this, Mark, <clears> we should <throat> talk about what exactly defines a, a Linux distribution. What defines it? Hmm, it's a good yes. question. Good question. What defines a distribution? The mascot, of course, is at the very top of that list. The person who started it, uh, yes. as the way it's uh, laid out, the way it's built, the way it's released. Uh, what else? How, we're getting there. Mm. I'm almost tempted to say Stuff the mascot. Like that, I guess. Yeah, I'm almost tempted to say the mascot and the and mm. the inventor is are totally irrelevant for the for the actual user. But uh -huh. Martin, when you said update policy and and also package management, I think you're bringing you're getting pretty close because yeah, in my books, good point, good point. this this would be what defines actually a distribution, i.e., how mm. you get the software on your computer and how often you do this. 
right. in terms of what is the upgrade policy. Yeah. As we all know, yeah. uh, projects that do not fall victim to BitRot are updated regularly. The kernel comes to mind, LibreOffice, the browser, and all the rest of it. Mm. Yeah. Um, well, there's also, uh, I mean, in recent years, there's been more um, people have changed the release mechanism, haven't they, for, from, let's say, uh, whatever frequency they had about two years or one year, whatever, for major releases. They have like the, the CentOS streams and uh, Ubuntu have the same, right? So it's uh, having various ways to keep your system up to date continuously rather than doing major releases but exactly you bring up a very interesting point because there are two schools out there mm. so-called rolling releases that continually update mm. a system arch probably would be the best example in the in the linux world and then you have other distributions that do it on a on a version basis ubuntu mm -hmm. and fedora and debian probably are are the examples that come to mind immediately yeah. Um, what, um, yeah. But uh, yeah, okay. So, what would be the? Uh, let's say, okay, clearly there's a benefit to having rolling releases because you get the latest versions of stuff um, automatically, um, which is nice for uh, patching CVs and stuff like that. Uh, why would you do choose for the other method, as in doing, um, you know, running a distribution for a number of years and? It's it's quite straightforward. As we all know, software mm. never has bugs. Especially ah. new software doesn't have any bugs at all. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> you should introduce me to this to, to this universe. <laughs> no jokes, I'd be glad jokes. to join. <laughs> no, I mean jokes. Jokes aside, the, the 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 proof of the pudding is actually the new when when a software is, has has new features. Chances are that these features, never mind the amount of QA as in quality, quality assurance mm. that you pour into a, a software or an, in, into a release, let's put it this way, always has bugs. So for me, it's a trade-off between staying up to date with software and the maturity of said software. So I see both sides in terms of mm. the advantage of a rolling release, actually that you always have the newest chip. But a point release, especially if if test one or the rest of it, has a level of maturity that you probably don't have in these rolling releases. Debian probably being the best example. Yep. Because Debian software mm -hmm. tends to be somewhat older, but quite stable. That's the mm. reason why uh, it's my preferred choice for any production server that doesn't have to run the latest shit. Mm -hmm. Makes sense. Makes sense. I mean, okay. what about what about you? You 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 mostly use proprietary Linux versions on your various devices, don't you? I do, I do. Yeah, um, OS X being one of them, which is <laughs> which is funny enough a BSD variant. Yes. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, uh, yeah, well, proprietary. Um, made all open source based products, projects, whatever you want to call them. Um, but yes, I, I do like the stability of um, major releases, to be honest, and the fact that it's not so much the, the, the Linux itself, right? It's the supporting software that is not, not the software that you actually want to run on it that is always uh, um, 
behind major releases. Uh, I can't remember, was it BBB? BBB being one of them that that's stuck with uh, 1604 Ubuntu for a long time, for example. Yes, true, um, very true, yes. BBB, of course, refers to Big Blue Button, mm. a system that we use internally for post-co- for post for po- for podcast production. <laughs> <laughs> Difficult word, indeed. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. But I mean, even even with the point releases, you're not. I mean, it, it. Of course, it also depends on the on the on the approach or philosophy behind the behind the distribution. Because, for example, I recently upgraded a machine from Fedora 37 to 38, mm-hmm. and my preferred display manager of choice, namely SDDM, broke. Okay. It used to work for uh, for 37. It was okay. But now it complains about some QT uh, dependency that it simply cannot resolve. So I had to switch G- back to GDM as a display manager. Uh, now, granted, Fedora is probably a little bit more of a playground than Debian or Ubuntu is. But even even with these point releases, you're you're not you're not immune to software bugs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, that's uh, that's a good point. So. Yeah. Um... The yeah. Second, the second dis- deciding feature, I, I reckon, is the is the packet manager, at least in my books, of a distribution. Okay. And it's funny because if well, you... Yeah, yeah. sorry, um, so I'm just going to uh, why... Um, I mean, every... Oh, every uh, we'll come to this in a minute, but uh, most, most distributions have a package manager, right? So, um, apart from one, yes, yes, <laughs> but that, that's not a distribution in, in, in its own right, but we come True. to that in a minute. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so you were saying, okay, it um, depends on the package manager. Um, what, what specifically do you mean about dependencies on package managers that everybody has? Well, all distributions have one, um, what would be the differences between various distributions and their package managers then? Um, that's a very interesting question, Martin, because, I mean, if you take the spins aside, and by spin, I mean mm-hmm. a, a, a distribution that relies on an upstream one, best example mm-hmm. probably being Ubuntu and Debian, yeah. because Ubuntu simply takes the upstream stuff that Debian mm-hmm. pushes out and then does its own thing with these sources. They both, they both use a package management called APT, um, but apart from that, each and every Linux distribution, and probably people will name me for that, um, has its own package management and, and and this approach. And now we're getting into the weeds of the thing. Mm. Because there are a couple of philosophies behind software distribution. And many distributions chose the, or choose rather, the pre-compiled binary approach, i.e. somebody takes a version of a software, puts it into a build system, hopefully does some level of, of quality assurance on this release, and then packages that release and puts it into a repository where other people can download it. Mm. And the other approach is actually that you simply put out the recipes, which people then can pull down and build their, and, and build their releases locally. Uh-huh. And the other extreme is actually <laughs> you just put out guidance on how to build a Linux system and then people can do it all by themselves. Uh-huh. And these um, are actually the three approaches that we're going to discuss in the rest of the of the episode. If I'm completely mistaken, if marketing is anything to go by that, that came up with the, with this idea. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, no, that, that sounds good. Um, so, where yes. do you want to start, I guess? Well, let's discuss the the three most probable candidates that come to mind. Arch, Gen uh-huh. 2, and Linux from scratch. Okay. In any particular order? Or? <laughs> oh, actually, let's, let's take a look at what defines them. Okay. All right. Yeah, Linux from scratch essentially means you have a couple of books, and these books tell you Mm. about how to set up a build system, how to build a base layer of software, how to deploy this software on a machine, and then basically take it to the next level. So step by step by step by step, you come to working system, but at the end of the day, because it's just a collection of mechanisms in terms of how to set up a build system, how to how to set up a machine, how to deploy software on a machine. Essentially, you're you're rolling your own distribution, mm-hmm. which okay. has the, which has the advantage that you get a system that exactly fits your needs. Is more likely than not very very compact because you only have yeah. the stuff that yeah. you need, and as a side effect, you learn Linux from scratch. Hence the name of this of this of this project, right? Because okay. If so you have to do it all by yourself, yeah, uh, the knowledge comes along essentially with it. Okay, that makes sense. Makes sense. Um, yeah, that sounds like a uh, well. It, it's clearly a good way to learn it inside and out for sure. Um, but yes, it's it's mainly uh, yeah. A set of books or instructions of how to do this rather than any um, physical thing to download. Um, size being the yeah, size, I guess, being the main. Uh, no, size is not the only advantage of doing that, right? You also have um, the. I mean, if you optimize or optimize, uh, we'll come to Gentoo in a minute. But if you, if you build everything locally towards your machine architecture uh you can compile things whichever way you need to run with that exactly so for example if you still have this commodore amiga sitting in the corner about 40 50 years old hmm. all you all you have to do commodore is amiga. Commodore yes amiga? it was an ancient machine from the 80s <laughs> it was made machine. by someone else wasn't it amiga no? uh no yeah, i think commodore bought it yeah at some stage or stick to uh, stick to atari um, these computers, oh, in theory, hmm. were able to run Linux because they, are, they had all the necessary bits and pieces in place, like the MMU, 16-30-bit CPU and all the rest of it. So all you have to do is essentially you have to create a tool chain that allows you to compile Linux and corresponding software packages for that architecture. Once you have this cross-compilation tool chain in place, you're off to the races hmm. because you take a kernel build that kernel for this specific architecture, if the kernel still supports this, uh, kernel.org is your best bet here for that sort of thing. No, I mean, jokes aside, um, there are, for example, there are quite a few people that still run 32-bit systems, especially in the ARM world. The ARMS v5, the ARMS v6 come to mind. Okay. And... For example, many of the early single-board computer systems, like the early Raspberry Pis, the Shiva plugs of the world, and all the rest of it, had 32-bit CPUs on them. Mm. And 
given the fact that even Arch has dropped 32-bit ARM support, you are confined to, I think, Debian. Ubuntu is, has dropped also 30-bit uh, support, so you're still confined to Debian and a few other distributions that still support 32-bit ARMs, unless you do it yourself. And this is the advantage, because once you have this cross-compilation toolchain up and running, you can do whatever you want with it. Yeah. Um, however, probably not for everyone. Uh, no. Um, st- uh, word of advice, exactly. If you have just been left by your partner or have gotten a divorce or ha- are looking for a time-intensive new hobby, then Construct <laughs> is exactly what you want to use. <laughs> Fair enough, fair enough. Because, yeah. it's, I mean, uh, granted, if you take a look, and of course, links will be in the show notes. If you take a mm. look at these books, these books take you by the hand. But given the fact that you are building a system from scratch, you learn a lot, but it's not something that you do over a weekend or within an hour, like kind of downloading an ISO image, putting on a stick, slotting that stick into into a laptop or into, into another computer, booting it up, you have a live system then, and that that, yeah. And then that live system basically takes you through the install. This is the preferred approach with Fedora, Debian, Ubuntu, whatever. And that's exactly not the case with Linux from scratch. True, true. Okay, okay. So, hmm. Makes sense, makes sense. What, um, what would be uh, another option? You mentioned Gentoo earlier. Yes, um, Gentoo has... A slightly different approach. Some kind of penguin, no? Uh, yes, actually, it's. I think Gento is actually the fastest penguin on um, species on the planet. Hence the name. Fastest in which way? <laughs> uh, speed. Yeah, speed of what? Uh. <laughs> uh, motion, if, if memory serves correct. Uh, As in what, how what, these critters uh, move through water and waddling, or <laughs> say, say again? waddling or whatever penguins do. I don't know. Waddling, swim, sliding on ice. Of, uh, sorry, on ice, yes. swimming maybe. Swimming, flying, flying, flying penguin maybe. <laughs> Who knows? It depends, it depends okay. on the amount of, of cash that they have on them. For yeah. penguins, right? <laughs> Indeed. <yeah. laughs> but maybe credit cards will do the trick as well. You never know. Hmm. Hmm. No, I mean, okay, the, carry on, yes. the, the idea behind Gen2 was actually to, it's similar to Linux from scratch, to give you a system that is tailored to your needs. But rather than you building it yourself, Gen2 takes you a little bit more by the hand and gives you, <laughs> most of the times, gives you a recipe to how to build the software. So if you want to set up a Gen2 system, essentially you pull down a base image similar to Fedora, similar to Ubuntu, similar to Debian, mm. and install this on, on, on your machine. And then it uses a package management called Portage that is not too distant from MacPorts, Homebrew, and some other package managers that especially mm. are deployed in the BSD world. Because what this package manager does, it basically takes a recipe, pulls down the sources from software repositories like GitHub or FTP sites and then builds the package locally. But this recipe then, or this this, this package management rather, knows how to resolve any dependencies recursively, meaning 
you all you have to do is basically you you give it a recipe. That recipe depends, uh, sorry, contains build instructions, but also contains dependencies. Mm -hmm. And then Portage, similar to other package managers, re resolves these dependencies recursively, pulls down the sources for these as well, resolves their dependencies and all the rest of it, and so simply builds the builds the software locally step by step by step. This is the advantage. Uh, I'm tempted to say, or rather, difference before before people crucify me. This is this is the difference. This is the difference between Linux from scratch and Gen two, because with Gen two you get these so called I think they're called e builds, okay. because because the corresponding portage command is actually called emerge. So what emerge essentially, essentially does is basically it pulls down a new version of the recipe. Builds the software locally and deploys it on your machine. Now there are of course exceptions to this rule because for every, every anybody who has or who tried or who has tried to compile Firefox or LibreOffice knows that this build, even on a fast machine, takes hours, if not days. So hmm. some of the stuff you can pull down pre-compiled as okay. a pre-build. Okay. But this is the exception rather than the rule. Yeah. Okay, and this repository, who maintains the source code? I think it's called gen2.org, but, but as I said, links will be in the show notes. Okay. No, I mean, the, the project itself maintains these recipes, these e-builds. Well, the recipe is fine, but the, what about the actual, um, let's say, the source code? That's, that's just sort of um, from various locations, as you mentioned. Well, whatever the recipe contains, whether it's GitHub or something like this, I mean, right? Okay. I mean, if you take a look at GitHub, if you have these tags, <laughs> and these mm -hmm. tags normally reflect reflect releases, and more often than not, these tags do have download assets, like compressed yep. tar files and zips and all the rest of it. But uh, for the kind of um, daring people need to say, depending on the recipe, it just may pull down a master, a master version. Or in more politically correct terms, I think GitHub has renamed this. It's now called main.zip. Uh -huh. Okay. Uh, right. So, sounds like a less work than Linux from scratch, for sure. Um. Okay, what's the difference with, with just a normal uh, pre-built binary distribution, binary compiling it locally? But, uh, why would you want to do this apart from wasting a lot of machine time? No, I mean, that's a very, that's a very valid question, Martin. Again, the answer is compactness, uh, modularity, and because essentially what you do Based on your own hardware, you can deploy. And if you take a look at the Gen2 documentation, that's exactly what you're doing when you're setting up the build environment for these recipes. You specify the exact version of the CPU, the exact version of the architecture, the exact optimization for all the packages that, that you build locally. And that gives you, of course, exactly the build, exactly the level of optimization that you want. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. the advantage over somebody else compiling the stuff for you. Needless to say, you do not get any bloat with with Gen 2 because you only get the software that you need. Unlike, for example, Mint or, or Ubuntu to name, to name two distributions, mm -hmm. where you install the stuff and where you get quite a few megabytes of software that you probably don't ever use. But um, because... 
canonical yeah. <coughs> or, or, the, or the or the other project have decided to include that in into the into the into the distribution you simply have to install and download it mm. yeah i mean even well, even with those uh, distributions you do get a certain amount of customization when you set it up right so you can include various um or not uh you know uh, you could just install Ubuntu server without any desktop environments, things like that. So there are options there, but yes, there's clearly um, another step with something like a, a Gen two to plus, be gained. Yeah. Plus, Gen two doesn't bother you out of the box with something called snaps, for example, <laughs> which are I think we have we mentioned these quite, before, <laughs> which are quite the rage. Are they into these days? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think there was they were mentioned in an episode before. But I can't remember which one we were talking about. I mean, it's it's a um, heated discussion because more and more projects are actually moving towards these containerized packaging formats. Uh, I'm just taking a look at Fedora and GNOME. Also, is very in favor of something called flat packs these days. Uh huh. Okay. So fine. So we have. Um, some improvement with Gen two or oh, improvement. Uh, so, <laughs> some more pre-built stuff with with Gen two. Okay, what what about Arch then? How is that different? Arch is actually a very interesting beast because, in theory, yes, you would get pre-compiled binaries that you simply download, similar to Ubuntu, Fedora, and all the rest of them. Okay, that you simply download from a from an update side or upgrade side, but. Arch is interesting in that regard because there's something called, apart from the project-maintained repositories like Core Extra and all the rest of them, which essentially contain software that a base installation is made up of, Arch has something called the AUR, the Arch User Repository. Mm-hmm. And full disclosure, I used to be I used to be an Arch package maintainer uh-huh. um, for a couple of Arch packages, and what these and what this AUR contains is actually similar to Gen 2 package builds, as they are called, as in PKG build. These are, again, recipes of how to compile stuff locally. So Arch is somewhat in between, say, Gen 2 and and kind of fully pre-compiled binary pack, uh, binary-based systems mm. like Ubuntu, Fedora, and all that. Okay, so a bit of a mix, mixture of, of, yeah, okay. Yeah. I mean, it's I mean, it's a very interesting approach because there's a little bit of overlap between Gen 2 and Arch because Arch supports package builds, and if you take a look at the at the core repositories like core like like core extra and 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 some other stuff, all they do is actually they also have package builds themselves. So each and every Arch package has a has a, has a package build that is used to build the software. This package build contains basically where the software comes from, its dependencies, uh, uh, patches, any patches that that have to be applied before the stuff's been on the rest of it. So the main difference between Gen 2 is that, and Arch, is that Gen 2, as a standard, does it locally on your machine, whereas Arch basically pulls down pre-compiled binaries. But the situation flips with some packages. As I said, Gen 2 supports pre-compiled binaries for the big projects like like LibreOffice, like Firefox, and all the rest of it, and Arch mm. has package builds for any AUR project that is out there, which has the interesting side effect that 
some of the Arch user repositories package builds really, and this has been a pet gripe of mine for at least the last seven, six years, simply basically pull down Intel binaries on architectures that do not support Intel binaries. <clears throat> okay. Because the, uh, the the core project itself, and I had long discussions with the with some of the core devs of Orange, only is of the opinion that there's, there's only Intel out there. Hmm. And to be more precise, there's only 60, 64-bit Intel out there. So you had all these spins like Alarm that simply took the Arch upstream package builds and mm. build it for local, not non-Intel architectures. Yeah. Alarm, okay. of course, being the being the best example for ARM architectures like V5, V6, V7. But with that, of course, comes a severe disadvantage because if the spin then decides to drop, for example, 32-bit support, you are left to your own devices. And that's exactly what Alarm did at the end of last year. And why did they do this? Because they considered 32-bit ARM architectures to be obsolete. Funny that, because I still quite I, I still know quite a few people that have ancient hardware sitting in their sitting in the basement, sitting in their sitting in their in their closets, the likes of Shiva plugs and all, and some other 32-bit ARM architectures that were running Alarm and which wouldn't get any updates then, because if you drop 32-bit support. You drop 32-bit builds, so you won't get any any security updates and all the rest of it. So that's a pretty dark situation. Plus the fact that these some of the AUR package builds actually just take a look at a download site that has a pre-compiled Intel binary and and try to pull this down to to, to your to your local ARM machine, ignoring the fact that actually you can specify the the corresponding architecture as part of the package build. Right, but they but they do regardless. So the yeah. the, the word the word of advice here is if you, if you if you're using Arch, especially if you're using in on non Intel hardware, like the V7s, V8s of of the of the R world, before you install a package, take a serious look. As in coming from the AUR, take a serious look at the package build itself, what it does, where it, where it gets stuff from, what it pulls down, and and what it installs and so forth, because chances are. You get a binary on your machine that does that. That will work. That's the advantage. not very helpful. Yeah. No, no, this is the the, the, the <laughs> disadvantage of the AUR of the Arch repository, because in contrast to the core uh, repositories, these package builds are not necessarily checked, as in quality assured. So, as your thirty-two bit ARM user, what options have you got actually? Debian comes to mind. Okay. It was from scratch, of course, Gen 2. Well, yeah. Yeah, I think from scratch sounds like a nice university project or something. <laughs> or, or as you say, if you just had a recent, um, uh, uh, let's say, job redundancy or whatever, <laughs> spend your spare time on your hands. But I mean, um, the, the only distribution that comes to mind immediately if that still supports 32-bit ARM is actually Debian. Uh, of okay. course, feedback is welcome. So if you know more distributions, feel free to drop an email to feedback at linuxinlaws.eu. Mm. Okay. So conclusions, Mr. Visser. Conclusions? Well, I, I mean, um, how have you done the Linux from scratch? 
Years ago, having been I, recently, I start... no, no longer stopped working. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Martin, I still work. You, you, you can't believe that. Now, ages ago, I took um, a look at. I mean, but we're talking at least seven or eight years just to take a crack of it. But I didn't conclude even the base image, as in building the base image, because well, okay. I, did, I didn't have the time. So, how I much thought, time are we looking at? Do you think? I mean, I tried to do it over a weekend to get going and then in the evenings, right. but I reckon, depending on your level of expertise, I mean, granted, both Gen 2 and Linux from scratch really take you by the hand. And these mm. projects, and to a lesser extent also Arch, people will crucify me, but jokes aside, people, the Arch, uh, the Arch Wiki is probably one of the best document yeah no i agree for that yeah, like the exactly yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, same goes for the the in the instructions that are out there for gen 2 and also and also from Linux from scratch mm. a both of them are pretty up to date both of them have the latest updates i think going back to march of 2023 so really current Linux from scratch and gen 2 both projects really take you by the hand mm. guide you through the steps of how to set this up, it, they, what they what they just require is a base understanding of a modern PC architecture, i.e. How, how disks work and so forth. But apart from that, they guide you through the partitioning, uh, setting up, uh, swapping right. and all the rest of it. But they do that in a very detailed technical level. And as a okay. prereq, as I said, not much is required. With Linux from scratch, of course, you should know how to set up a Linux machine because you need a second Linux machine in order to build your toolchain, in order to set up your compilation environment for Linux from scratch. Mm. So that is so that project does require a basic understanding of how of how Linux works. But Gen two on the other side is a little bit less demanding because all you have to do is basically, and of course Gen two does come with with kind of installer scripts that will basically pull down and build a and build a base image for you. So all you have to do is basically you have to prep the hardware environment, set up the partitions and all the rest of it, and then mm. you simply pull down the script and this and, and then the script will just will do the rest for you. So it'll set up a it'll set up a, a initial compiler a compilation environment. It will set up a gen it will set up a change route. It will install a base layer or a stage as they call it in Gen 2. It will um, install a stage three to be more precise on this hardware, and once this stage three installation has been done, you can actually reboot reboot machine and are sitting in front of a base user land. Yeah. That then allows you to install additional packages like graphical user environments and all the rest of it. Yeah. So if you no, wanna uh, if you wanna yeah. deviate from the likes of Ubuntu Mint and whatever. <laughs> Debian. Uh yes, Debian to some extent. <laughs> Take a look at Arch Gen 2 and, of course, Links from Scratch, depending on your level of amount, uh, on the on your, on your amount of time that you have at your disposal, of your ambitions, and of your requirements, essentially. I mean, I'm tempted to say if you have very little time and if you want to stick to Intel, the likes of Debian and, and Ubuntu probably, or even Fedora, or CentOS Stream, Rocky, Rocky Arnold, you yeah, name yeah, it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Not to forget mm. them are probably your 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 weapon of choice in better commas. But mm. I mean, if you are deviating from that, and if you really want to get into the weeds, take a look at these the at these three different alternatives. Okay, that would be my side or my conclusion. Martin, anything to add before we venture nearer the dark side? 
No, no, I'm looking forward to the dark side, yeah. Sure. Oh, yes. So now, people, because Martin has been pushing this for ages, we are more than happy to give you another episode of the dark side. Again, feel free to send us feedback. And with that, enjoy the following sketch. Mr. Darkseid, tech support, how may I help you? Ah, my name is Amos, ruler of Egypt. My people have lost something. Not again. This is the second time today that people ring about lost items. We are not the lost property office, you know. This is important. My people have suffered a great loss. Uh, okay, okay, I get it. Support contract number, please. How did I know? I normally leave such administrative details to one of the lower gods or even priests. Sorry, without a valid support contract, I cannot help you. Hmm. Okay, let me have a look. It's six, 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 double six, double six, 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 and triple six. That's five times triple six, correct. Are you one of these devil worshippers, perchance? Not that I know of. Turns out that somebody named Osiris just renewed your support contract before the... Wait, ten plagues hit? Have you lost one of these plagues? No, far worse. My people just lost their firstborns, kids and cattle. The tenth plague, I see. Sorry, mate, but can't help there. What? Is that what Egypt is paying support for? Relax. I may have a solution. Let me check if God is available. Buddy, do you have a minute? Some Egyptian chap wants to have a word about some genocide or something. Seems to be somewhat important. Okay, I'll patch him through. Amos, are you still there? Putting you through to her right now. This call may be monitored for quality and training purposes, though. If you are in disagreement, please disconnect now. This is Yahweh, the Heavenly. How can I be of assistance? My people have lost all their firstborns, including cattle. Your name and support contract number? Amos, ruler of Egypt, support contract number five times triple six. I see. Let me look up your file. Yep, I have you here. <laughs> Consider yourself lucky. If it wasn't for the assembly of higher deities, I wouldn't have stopped at cattle and firstborns, but would have ended the whole lot of you, including mites, flunkies, pharaohs, in that order. Hmm. What? You see, there's this congregation of higher deities called the Assembly of Gods, who think they know it all and are thus entitled to run the show. Trouble is that every minor genocide, like ending Egypt for good, has to be put to a vote in front of the whole lot of them. Further trouble is that most of them consider themselves in the greater good, subscribing to the illusion that all gods and their people are created evil. Sorry, pun intended. I couldn't resist. Equal. And at the end of the day, come close to something called communism about 2,000 years from now on. 
Uh, pretty much saved your kind. You speak in riddles. Divine interventions seem to be complicated with humans. <laughs> no change here. According to the ruling opinion, a tiny Egyptian genocide would have created an imbalance when it comes down to religions, as there would not have been people subscribing to ISIS and the Motley crew. Not that I would care, by the way. So it wasn't on with the purest among the assembly who called the shots. Too bad. So that motion was overruled, and I had to go for cattles. And firstborns only, I'm afraid. But... I digress. But why, in the name of Osiris and Isis, why did you kill them in the first place? Without a people or even cattle, there's nothing much to rule, so I have to go look for a new job or hitting the door queue right away. Oh, yes, good question. Let me look this up on your file. Okay, got it now. It says here that you enslaved a people called Israelites as a thank you for their services to your country. Even in our non-politically correct times, most people would consider this somewhat of an offence. As history is all about repeating, I had to set an example in order to avoid similar future incidents. But who will help me building pyramids in my name to all future generations and attract visitors, which in turn will guarantee prosperity and social stability for generations to come? Uh, uh, look, buddy, if you tie yourself to tourism too much, you will be exposed at any economic influxation, locally or foreign. First thing that people will save on is travel once a pandemic hits or economy goes south. You're not doing yourself a favour. Plus the fact that other people are way better at this. In the not too far distant future, a chap up the road beyond the desert will walk across the water attracting way more people than your petty tombstones. <laughs> Proper circus for a change. I couldn't care less, as you are wrong, divine or not. What is going to happen next? Either you let the Israelites go, or more plagues will punish you and your people. Do enlighten me. Not too far in the future, an emperor will invade Egypt, coming across the sea from the north, and will enslave your people. Couldn't care less, as I'll be a fading drawing on a pyramid wall by then, of people will look at me in foreign countries if the priests finally get mummification right. I will send more conquerors from the north, invading your country and selling cheap takeaway food on every street corner, leading to your people feeding into oblivion due to malnutrition. My people are strong enough and will survive if we have enough cats to sustain on. I will blackmail, uh, convince Isis into putting a female ruler into place who will collude with the emperor from the north. I give up. The first punishment is enough. No mingling with foreigners required. The Israelites go free. Finally? But you took your sweet time. Why is it always that difficult with petty-minded kings, Egyptian or not? I prefer your kind to be convinced by arguments rather than having to resort to threats almost every time. Man, this is difficult. And certainly wasn't part of the job description when I signed up for this gig. 
all those million years ago. Anyway, I think we're done here. And please, no more complaints from any people about you lot, Israelites or not. Otherwise, the next 10 plagues will make version 1.0 look like a walk in the park. Think along the lines of Trump getting re-elected or something. Uh, who is Trump and what does he have to do with it? <laughs> Better keep my gab shut about future events. The space-time continuum is screwed up enough as it is. Oh, <laughs> doesn't matter. Oh, you wouldn't understand this anyway if you don't get the tie-in of tourism with macroeconomic aspects. <laughs> I'll hand you back to the first level and nice talking to you. <laughs> Is there anything else I can do for you today? I think I learned my lesson. Thank you for choosing the dark side in that case and have a nice day. And don't hesitate to ring the dark side again in any case of further plagues or other tardy inconveniences. Which goes to show that even gods cannot really be trusted with getting the job right, even if a ruler is a chauvinistic pig. So, choose your religion wisely. So, Martin, what do you make of it? Uh, what do I make of it? Yes, well... God and the pharaoh and 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 the and the yeah. operator. I didn't know God was Scottish, but there we go. That's, that's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you learn something new every day. Martin, Martin, no, I think they have some different problems up there. At the moment, but <laughs> I reckon maybe God, some, need some divine God. intervention as well. The SNP. <laughs> <laughs> SNP. If you're not happy with that comment, please send me back. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> no jokes aside, I think uh, deities and uh, and that of course would include God itself, mm. herself, um, or himself, come in many shapes and forms. So ah, yes, of course, God is being one of them. Exactly, and as we all know, I think most of the deities are actually female, or not? Maybe not. We do. Okay. But <laughs> genders are I thought they were, were gen gender independent. You, know? you never know. But I mean, Neutral, genders are an invented concept anyway, you know? Maybe evolution just took a wrong turn. I don't know. I think they probably don't have a gender because they don't reproduce like uh, things with genders, do they? So that's why there's so few of them. <laughs> Otherwise, there'd be loads of gods everywhere. Exactly. But I mean, I think um, Hindus. Don't stop at thousands of them. Excuse me. <clears throat> so they all come from, yeah, Hindus don't stop at a thousand of them. So they they all must come from somewhere. Right, right, right. Yes. Hmm. Well, they come from the the Big Bang, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. Who knows? And I think there are books. <laughs> Maybe we should, we should <laughs> written on the subject that go into yes. a desired level of detail, outlining how it's done. But that may be actually a subject for another episode. Indeed, indeed. <laughs> How to spawn or fork gods. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, yes. And Good book that, title. <laughs> yes. Hmm. And with that, people, we would like to thank you for listening. Indeed. See you soon. Bye-bye. This is the Linux In-Laws. You come for the knowledge. But stay for the madness. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening. This podcast is licensed under the latest version of the Creative Commons license 
type attribution share alike. Credits for the intro music go to Blue Sea Roosters for their song Salute Margaret, to Twin Flames for their piece called The Flow used for the segment intros, and finally to Celestial Ground for their song Sweet Justice used by the Dark Side. You find these and other ditties licensed under CC at Chimando, a website dedicated to liberate the music industry from choking copyright legislation and other crap concepts. Thank <laughs> you.